Hello everybody and great to have you with us again for another Motorsport Magazine podcast and we are uh, talking to you from our brand new headquarters in Hampstead in London and I must say it's very smart and uh, comfortable our new home for Motorsport Magazine up here in the north of London and uh, it'll be our new home of the Motorsport podcast for the for the future evermore and i hope um you can see it all actually can't you with our our podcast video anyway um what you may not know is that hampstead is is actually a bit of a hub of historic motorsport i can see people looking surprised but it is because uh just round the corner was jerry marshall's marshall wingfield garage the famous jerry marshall saloon racer and uh, so was speedwell that john sprinzel's company speedwell uh, which uh, the older ones amongst us remember very well from our yeah, early I days. Did. Graham Hill drove, was a director. <laughs> yes, yeah, correct. I drove, I drove an A35, A35 to the Grand yeah. Prix. Yeah. This, by the way, is Alistair Caldwell, who I will introduce in just a moment. <laughs> um, and uh, Graham Hill uh, actually was born only a mile away from here. So there you go. But not only that, W.O. Bentley was born nearby as well. So as I say... We are well set up here in our new Motorsport Magazine headquarters. Good. Um, welcome, Alistair Caldwell. Hello. Ra famous rally driver <laughs> and the mastermind behind James Hunt's World Championship in 1976, which some of us remember like it was yesterday as well. And I'll come to that a little bit later on. But thank you very much for coming in, Alistair. I know you're off on an another rally uh, the day after tomorrow, so... This is great to have you just for an hour or so now. Um, it's the 40th anniversary this year of the, of the uh, 76 season, obviously, for those mathematicians amongst you. And uh, we'll be telling you so about something quite exciting to do with that a little bit later on. Anyway, Alistair, let's start at the very beginning. Um, how did you get from being way down in New Zealand to working for the McLaren team? Well, as a young man, I was, uh, you know, I was a mechanic. I, I served my time as apprentice mechanic. And in New Zealand, uh, I worked on people's racing cars, uh, quite a few. And I worked for a company called the Motor Road Racing Team. Worked as a loose expression. I didn't, nobody worked, nobody paid me. <laughs> I just did it from enthusiasm. Worked it in the weekends. I know the feeling, Alistair. And, uh, and motor racing in New Zealand was a... Um, not a thing you did full time. It was a summertime sport. There was nobody. I don't think there was anybody employed in it full time. It was an amateur thing, or semi amateur, and uh, people might have got expenses. But we did have this fantastic deal where we had the, ta uh, tra uh, the um, Tasman series, where all the Grand Prix drivers in the off season, because there was a long off season then, used to build cars, especially two and a half liter cars, and come out and race in a series of races in New Zealand and Australia. And we used to get to race against them. And uh, my brother became a racing driver saved up bought himself a car and uh, he raced a, a little Lola for a season Lola Mark 1 which I still I own now the actual car is in mm. my garage at home tried to buy it for 40 years and eventually got it <laughs> and um, and then after that season he did another season in a Brabham single seater twin cam uh, you know, Lotus twin cam engine they had a 1500cc class and uh, so these were the cars and lots of Australians and New Zealanders had them as a you know cheap way or low yeah. low entry point for for um, formula racing 
And so Bruce and Denny and Clark and Hill and all these people, Rodriguez and so on, they used to come and race against us. And, and we used to race in those actual races with them. And uh, so this was very good. And there was a great social scene because we mixed with them. They were very relaxed in those days. They water skied, played cricket, chased the girls, <laughs> got drunk. Um, and then generally had a good time. They loved it. They loved the Tasman series and so did we. Uh, sadly, my brother was killed at Teratonga in one of these races, the last race of the New Zealand part of the, of the thing. And, uh, and uh, that's the 50th anniversary, that's another anniversary. It's 50 years since my brother was killed at Teratonga. Mm. And so this was a big setback for me and my family, obviously. But it didn't really put me off. Um, I thought, you know, I, I stopped motor racing because of, of that. Uh, but there was a little bit of a legacy because we sold the car and he had some life insurance. So with a very small amount of capital, um, I could have bought a house in New Zealand as a young married man. I was already a married man with two small children. But for some reason, well, I'd also met race mechanics and a lot of the race mechanics in Grand Prix racing in those days were New Zealanders. There was a huge New yes, Zealand so influence in Grand Prix racing. 10% of the drivers or more were New Zealanders. There was three of them. Uh, and there was Bram as well. So there was only 12 cars on the grid or something. And there was four Australasians. Yeah. I mean, so there was a huge percentage. And a huge percentage of the workers were all Australasians yeah. and New Zealanders. And they would come on the Tasman series and say, oh, you should come to England, Alistair. You'll get a job. You'll get a job, no trouble. So uh, with this in mind, I had written to Mount Clarence saying I was going to come, but I didn't expect a reply and didn't get one. <laughs> and uh, so I flew, uh, which cost a fortune, but in fact saved me money because I didn't come by ship, didn't lose six weeks' work, because in those days I was you know, a young married man again, had to earn. And uh, got, to McLaren, uh, got to England and had an aunt who lived in Jarrah's Cross, and she picked me up at the airport, and then I asked her to where McLaren's were. I had no idea. Oh. Geographically, I didn't know. You know Jarrah's Cross, Heathrow, and McLaren's, I had no idea. I hadn't done any research on this. She said, oh, it's only 10 minutes away, dear. It's, you know, it's in Colnbrook. I'll take you there Monday morning. Uh, so she did. And there was a guy called Harry Pierce, who was the works manager, who was called. And I met him, and I said, I'd like a job as a mechanic. And he said, I'll go and ask. I'll ask, he didn't, and he went upstairs and talked to Teddy and, and Bruce, I didn't know, he just went upstairs. And he came back after five minutes and said, sorry, no, we don't need any mechanics. Um, I said, well, do you have any jobs at all? And uh, he said, yeah, uh, we need a cleaner. I said, well, cleaner, I'm excellent. I am a very good cleaner, believe me. And uh, <coughs> so I said, you know, I'll take the cleaning job. Yeah. So they said, okay, tomorrow morning here at eight o'clock, whatever. So the next morning I started as a cleaner and I cleaned during the day, but at lunchtime and so on, I'd, I'd talk to the race mechanics. And at the end of the day, they had this BRM engine, little Formula 2 car, which Bruce was running in Grand Prix racing quite successfully, funnily enough. So, you know, almost did very well with it, in fact. And uh, anyway, I, I, after I finished at five, I went over them and said, you know, can I give you a hand? And they said, yes. And I remember quite clearly, they said, oh, you can change the ratios in the gearbox. Now, I'd never taken this kind of <laughs> gearbox apart, but I took it apart and took the ratios out and uh, then I, they gave me a list, Tyler gave me a list, so I searched the building for the ratios, I couldn't find them. I didn't want to ask anybody any questions, so I searched the building. <laughs> Eventually I found the keys to the truck, and went outside, opened the transporter and there they were. So I you know, sorted them out, put the old ones back, put them in the gearbox, put it back together again, and then said, now what? And they kept giving me things. And so at two o'clock in the morning, Tyler said, oh, we're gonna go home now. I said, okay. And uh, I said, what time do you get to work? He said, oh, about 7.15. Mm -hmm. uh, so I walked Joe Jarrett's Cross, which took me a couple of hours, <laughs> and uh, went to bed and then got my sainted aunt up at 6 o'clock in the morning after a few hours, a couple of hours sleep, asked her to drive me back to, to 
which she did. And so um, I got there. So when Tyler got to work, I was sitting on the wall outside. And uh, he went, which is what he did. <laughs> Just grunted at me, took me inside and said, you know, do this. To make that do that. So I just did, and uh, so um, yeah, when Harry Pierce came to work at nine o'clock, he said, "You you need a new um, cleaner because this bloke's a mechanic." <laughs> so I worked for eight hours as a cleaner, and the next day I was a mechanic. And uh, I can keep talking if you want. Uh, no, it's a great. It, it, it's a great. It, it's a great story, and it's also a source of fantastic inspiration for anybody listening who wants to get into motor racing. Yeah, I just love get inside it. the building. Absolutely. Just give them a hand. Yeah. I mean, Alistair, how many people were there in total working at McLaren's at that point? Well, I didn't count them in those days, but very few. Um, what um, about 10, 15, yeah. 15? Yeah. 15? I mean, I like to tell the story that, you know, I have a photograph, I don't have it with me, but yeah, when we won the World Championship in 74, we took a picture of everybody outside the factory with the three cars, with the Indy car, the Can-Am car, and the Formula 1 car, and all the people who were in the company all the, everybody and in that year in 74 we won the world championship and we ran two grand prix teams if you'll remember we ran two teams the two trucks two yeah. separate teams one for Halewood and one for Fittipaldi and Hull mm -hmm. who had to be provided with spare cars and all the cars had to be run in exactly the same configuration right. this was a nightmare which we did we ran Can-Am which we won the championship we ran Indy we won Indy yeah. we won the Formula 5000 championship Fantastic. which we built the car with uh, Gethin. We won Formula 2 races with a Formula 2 car which we built. Yeah. Now all the employees are standing there, you know how many there are? There's 34 of them. <laughs> There's three, four people. And that's two, two, tea ladies, two ladies, two tea ladies. Mm -hmm. uh, an accountant, you know, a receptionist, yeah. a secretary. So the actual working people and those people built all those cars. They didn't buy them in. They didn't assemble them like McLaren's do. You know, they assemble two cars that they get sure. all the bits bought in. Mm -hmm. We built two Indy cars, two Can-Am cars, five Grand Prix cars, Formula 5000 cars, Formula 2 cars, all built in-house. Every piece of suspension, every monocoque was riveted together. Everything was done in that building by those people, and they won all those championships, do which you is a fantastic achievement. Yeah. Do you know how many people work at McLaren today? Oh, it's, in th it's over a thousand <laughs> to not build two Grand Prix cars. <laughs> it might, might be. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's so farcical that it's beyond belief that they could be that stupid, that they would paint themselves into a corner like that, yeah. that they would have this car with no suspension. The car is just like a, like a scale lump of lead. Yeah, it's useless. The car itself is really, really, you know, it's just an engine. It's all about the engine. It's mm. all about the electronics. The car itself had, can have no suspension because it's got so yeah. much downforce. It, mm. It, it, mm. It's solid as a rock. And, uh, and the fact that they can... They, how, what are they all doing? <laughs> <laughs> it's probably what can they be all doing? <laughs> Apart from 800 of them watching, 200 of them watch the other 10. <laughs> well, I expect, some of them, I expect some of them are cleaning, actually. Yeah, and listening for the, listening for the built-in speakers. But, but it's, it's, it's very hard to know how many people. I know too much fun here. It's very hard to know how many people are actually there because it's such a big blinking place, yeah. and all the corridors are completely yeah. anonymous, all painted the same colour. Yeah, and I mean, how, how you find anybody in anything is a mystery to me. And they don't actually wear habits, but they should. Possibly, yes. Because they all walk around like monks. Nobody says anything. Nobody smiles. They're all, well, they're all looking frightened. We all. Oh, <laughs> well, they are. <laughs> 
We all hope that McLaren does a lot better this coming season and uh, best of luck to them because we'd like to see them back up at the front. Alistair, tell us about your first Grand Prix, which was at Monza. Uh, yeah. We're jumping around, of course, I because I, we... I, I'm, I'm happy to jump around. Didn't you drive well, the truck? Yes, I, 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 I worked incessantly on these Can-Am cars. I was lucky because my wife hadn't arrived. Uh, she was still coming by sea. Uh -huh. And um, so I was you know, a bachelor. And so I was able to put in an enormous amount of hours. And I, I worked an incredible amount of hours. And I had a, fun, a fantastic job, you know, because the Can-Am car in those days, even the Grand Prix car, basically they, they drew the monocoque and the basic layout of the wishbones. But after that, all the oil system, water system, brake systems, it was all done by the mechanics. We designed all that stuff. We made all the gear change and all that stuff. And nothing was drawn, you know, there was none of this business about everything being drawn to a millimeter. It was all, we made the jigs we, for the suspension, we made the jigs for the chassis. We did it all, and that was fantastic fun because it was creative about anything else. And you could do things. You know, Bruce would come and say, oh, we've got to have the, do this. And we'd say, oh, we could do it like that. We used to go to the pub literally with bit, and write literally on paper napkins. We used to do drawings <laughs> and discuss because all we ever did was talk about racing cars. That was it. We were just all totally obsessed. And we'd just draw pictures and then we'd say, oh, that'll be the way to do it. And we'd rush back to the factory and build that. <laughs> we'd make it or we'd give it to the drawing office. So that's what it's going to look like. And um, so this was great fun because you were involved intimately in, you know, I mean, when the Can-Am cars were taken to the airport to be flown to Montreal, I think, for the first race, I rode in the, in the trailer on the car in the, on the way to Heathrow, fitting the door locks, <laughs> or, which I had designed and made myself. You know, and I was fitting them to the car, and then they took me back, and I got in the other Can-Am car and fitted them to that one, and then they got in the, you know, and they only got out of the car at the airport when you put it on the scales because we were still working on them <laughs> as they got rolled into the airport. You know. Fantastic. And um, so after that... It was all a bit of a letdown because they'd gone and suddenly mm. you know, we were just going set to build another monocoque, a you know, spare monocoque. And Bruce came along and we had in the corner, we had this V12 BRM engine car. Uh, I don't know what number it is. It's a McLaren. They only made one of them. And um, this was the end of the 67 season. And uh, it said it the this M5A maybe? Yes, I don't I know those numbers. It was a one-off. Yeah. It was they had got this V12 BRM engine and built this curved monocoque car. I remember that because it had to be wheeled. It was the last car that we had a, a shaped monocoque for. No, actually, I lied. The M19 was like that as well. Anyway, it was a curved car. You know, it had shape to it, like an eagle. Yeah, an eagle was a beautiful car, and this was yeah. a bit eaglish. Yeah. And um, and. Uh, Bruce came to me and said, would you like to go to Monza? I said, you know, does, does Rose Kennedy have a black dress? Um, <laughs> and he said, well, the truck's going you know, tomorrow morning or this afternoon. Um, can you go, would you go? So I said, yeah. So I nipped back to Maidenhead where I now had a flat, got my passport and put some knickers in a bag. And, um, and there was a guy called Mike Barney, who was the chief mechanic. Yeah, yeah. And he and I climbed in the truck. Well, in fact, I climbed in the truck by myself, followed him across London to his house where he left his car for his wife. And then we both got in the truck and uh, drove off to Dover. I mean, that was a huge saga. I could, I could fill <laughs> up your whole program with, uh, you know, getting the truck to Monza, which, they, uh, which was a major feat. They impounded the truck, didn't they? But, but well, they I was trying to speed it up. Yeah, we, we didn't have a piece of paperwork, which was called an Aki Accorsion, lovely name, which was a piece of paper <laughs> for, um, for the spares. And we didn't have one. I didn't know it existed. But the RAC man, who was uh, in uniform, who saluted when the truck came, 
Um, he had a look at the paperwork and said, oh, you don't have your Aki? And I said, oh, of course we don't. Yeah, I mean, what do you mean? And Mike said, oh, God, yeah, we don't have it. He said, don't even go to France and leave the truck here, get it tomorrow morning. But we went to France. They, they locked the truck up. I could flesh it out, but basically, I said to the French RSC man who greeted us, I said, why don't we bribe these guys? He said, oh, no, 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 oh, no, 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 we'll be all in prison, oh, no, 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 not possible. You see, I said, well, everything I've ever read, you can bribe French customs just like that. No, 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 no. So we stayed the night. We got up early in the morning, went back, and the truck was locked up. And poor Mike had to go up to the you know, pay phone in the, in the restaurant, because there was no, this is pre-mobile phones, sure. remember? and bang, bang uh, uh, Franks into a phone to ring up Bruce. And it was seven, and so it was six in England, so poor Bruce is in bleh, being rung up to say, we've got to send somebody to the RSC, get this thing raised, bring it down to Dover, come on a ferry, give it to us, and go. And I, you know, I was new to all this, and I thought, God, that's gonna take a while, we're never gonna get to Monza at this rate. So I was left in the office and I had this big suitcase which had money in it and all the paperwork, the, the carnets for the engine and the car and so on. And so I knew nothing of French money, but I opened it up, big brown envelope with, with you know, cash on it. So I opened it up and it was full of French francs and, and, the, and the 200 franc notes were like this. They were huge, they were beautiful things. They, they were like a work of art. And I got one of these out and had a look at it and I had two young customs officers with me in the office of them. And I, they looked very interested. <laughs> and I was working, I said, well, how about one of these for you? And one of these for you? And we get the big key, <coughs> the grand clay, and we go and get the camion. <laughs> we, they said, oh. So they folded these up, put them in their pockets <laughs> with great ceremony. And then two of us walked up the wharf, the three of us got the truck out. And I drove it down the wharf, and Mike was still on the phone to Bruce explaining what we had to do. And I went, doodle, doodle, doodle. <coughs> got the truck. So off we went. And then when it got to Italy, when it got to go out of France, I was already ready for this. I had my two <laughs> off it went. <laughs> and then when I got to Italy, the same. You know, there was 400 trucks or something queued for miles at the border, and I just passed them all. They banged on the truck, threw rocks at it, and so on. Got to the front, got out, put a 10,000 lira note in each carne. Went up to the window, went, and the boys went, Shh, bang, 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 and off we went. We were there for 10 minutes. <laughs> that guy's been there for days. <laughs> I tell you what. We went down to Monzo, parked the car in the paddock, because in those days it was this cobble thing with garages, you know, like, yeah. got the car out, put all the spares in the garage, and went off to to lunch and when when they turned up we would have had a magnificent lunch my <laughs> first ever italian meal which i can tell you every detail of <laughs> I bet, yeah. <laughs> and, but yeah we got the car there and this kind of made a bit, made a bit of my reputation with bruce because i had bribed the customers mm. in and out of sure. france yeah. and I, n I could never been to france i mean you know <laughs> yeah, I sussed it and did it and got the truck there. So, yeah, so they were very pleased with that. And then uh, and we had so much fun. I mean, we, the, car, the car was red. I don't know why it was red, but it was red. And they, all, they went to scrutineering and they said, oh, it's not possible, this car has to be green. English cars are green, you have to paint this car green. And we said, well, we don't have any green paint. They Wonderful. said, well, we've race day, the car has to be green. <laughs> so Bruce decided that well, what we would do, we would paint the car green completely, everything, wheels, tires, engine, <laughs> that was our plan. <laughs> and Pat was sent off to town to get some aerosols, which were a new invention, and she came back with a box of 10, 
uh, 12 aerosols, green, bright green aerosols. And we were going to paint the whole car, everything, just for fun. But Bruce qualified fourth, and the, and the grid was 434 four in those days. So the Italians came, I'm not making this up, and said, could you leave the car red, please? <laughs> and we said, why is that? They said, well, we've never had an Italian Grand Prix without a red car on the front row, and you're on the front row, so we want it left red. Boy, oh this boy. Is, this is true. Those were the days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were the days. So we didn't paint it green. We were looking forward to having this green car with green wheels and green engine and green everything. But as it was, it didn't happen. Fantastic. And what a it, um, it ran out of oil in the race. The oil tank wasn't big enough. It, you know, it, it drank all the three gallons or whatever and ran its bearings. Mm. Otherwise, it was doing very well. Because yeah. that was the great joy of Monza in those days that everybody, you know, it didn't matter how wonky your team was, you had a chance at Monza because yeah, they all yeah. strips, slipstreaming yeah. around. Uh, and if your boy had good Formula 3 um, um, career, he might have a chance yeah, of being yeah, third sure. on the last lap. Yeah. So what you had to be, you had yeah. to be third on the last lap so you could yeah. pass twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Once at the back yeah. and once at round Lesbos and come over the line in front. Um, <laughs> you mentioned Pat just now and um, Patty McLaren, obviously yeah, she, she died, just died a couple, just yeah, a couple yeah, of days exactly. ago. Um, what, what, I met her very briefly in December for the first time. I had a really entertaining lunch with her. Mm -hmm. uh, great feisty character. Could you tell me a little bit about what she was like as a person and... Uh, well, fortunately, well, um, you know, because of the way we were and the way we worked, we didn't uh, have that much contact her, with her. But uh, I remember once famously, um, we went to the tyre testing in um, Madrid and I drove the truck and Tyler came and, uh, and Pat came. And we went on that kind of mini cruise, which you go from, from to Santander, you know, and we spent the whole, uh, <laughs> you spend it overnight. It's two, so two, yeah, it's like a mini cruise. Yeah. And she came with us, and there was Bay of Biscay was just a huge turmoil, <laughs> so the ship was going. <laughs> so in the dining room, there were five people. Pat, Tyler and I and another couple. So they put us together and all the chairs and stuff were bolted down and, um, and uh, we had a good time. She, had, she enjoyed herself and uh, she was keen on a drink. So we did a lot of drinking and uh, yeah. So I know Pat, Pat was she, good fun. She was the timekeeper, wasn't she? And the lap charter and everything for the team, wasn't yes, she? Yes, that was traditional. Yeah. That was traditional. The girlfriend of the wife was always expected to do the lap yeah. chart and do timing. And some of the girls were very good. Some of the girls were fantastic. They had a you know, jump back watch, you know, a split. Yeah. I forget what they're called. They've got a proper name. Yeah. Stopwatch that, that you stop and then catches up again. Yeah. And some of the girls could time all 15 cars. Pat every, Sophie every was lap. particularly good, I think, wasn't and, she? And, and Pat used to do this. Mm. I don't, she could only do four or five because some of them can do all 15, but mm. most girls just concentrate on the top half dozen. We'd say we wanted time. You know, we'd say we want louder, blah, blah, blah. We'd say who we wanted yeah. time, then they would clack, clack, clack. And they could do this jump and they would have to do the arithmetic. And then in the race, they would do a lap chart. Mm. And uh, they would do a, you know, a very good lap chart because that's all there was. And then if you had some drama with a pit stop or something, I used to do a compromise. I used to do a, a survey. I'd go and see what Mrs. Um, uh, Tyrrell, what was her name? Nora, Nora Tyrrell. Yeah. She was great. She, was, she had a fantastic lap chart. And Chapman used to do one. Colin, yes, he did. Colin, he, did, he yeah, did every yeah. lap. He, did, he timed and did the lap chart. And he did a good one. Mm. And they couldn't hide it from you. So <laughs> we didn't have a lap charter. So, but we all go and look at Chapman's. Oh, yes. And he'd go, oh, get out of it. Because <laughs> he couldn't stop you, really, from just going, oh, yeah, okay, with. Uh. <laughs> Brilliant. And uh, famously Brilliant. at uh, Canada, I think it was, there was a huge controversy about who won the race. 
which was fit poorly, and hence the World Championship. And uh, and the, you know, all the lap charters were arguing with the with the with the, uh, yeah. the organisers' lap charters and so on. Mm. I did. Um, you worked. You've worked with an incredible number of drivers. I mean, just to name a few: Denny Helm, Jody Schechter, Peter Revson, Jochen Mass, Peter Gethin, Chris Amon, Emerson Fittipaldi, Mike Hellwood, James Hunt, and we'll talk about James in a, in a little a little bit. Um, from your perspective, which ones really, really, really stood out for you? I, mean, I guess Emerson? Emerson was a very good driver um, and a hugely hard-working driver who put an enormous amount of effort yeah. into, into the race team, talked, um, knew how to test, wanted to test, wanted to change the car. If anything, he was a bit too enthusiastic. Um, you know, he always liked new things, so we used to end up with a new car syndrome. In '74, <laughs> we won the world championship, but we never raced the car in the same configuration. It was either wider front track, narrow rear track, longer wheelbase. Oh God, because you know we would do all these <laughs> configurations, and we never raced the car in the same configuration. Get, tell me. And because we had this contract with Holm, had to have the same gear, and so did Halewood, we had to build five sets of this stuff. So, boy, did we build a lot of redundant crap in 74. Um, <laughs> Bet the uh, mechanics loved that. Oh, they didn't. I mean, we just, yeah, it was just stupid, really. I mean, you know, management should have said, actually, we're just secretly, you know, Philip Paulie's car will be wide track, and the others will just be told there's our wide track. <laughs> you know, anyway, we, we didn't cheat. We didn't cheat. That's I'd like to add that. We never cheated. We never ran two cars that were different. Yeah. We always ran two cars that were the same. Mm -hmm. But any Grand Prix team or any race team who's got a first driver and a second driver, the first car's going to be better. Because whenever you've got two things, there's always one that's better than another. The, the simple as the engines. There's five engines in the truck and you've got the dyno sheets. Who's going to get the strongest engine? And when all the tyres are mounted up, 50 sets of tyres are mounted, they're all checked for diameter, they're all checked for run-out, and the number one set is perfect. The diameter is perfect, the run-out is perfect, guess whose car they go on. Yeah. And the second best set go on the same car. The third best set or the fourth best set mm -hmm. go on the second driver. Yeah. But the, the nice thing about the second driver, because I used to have this, they'd say, you know, who's the first driver? I'd say, it's quite simple. The first driver is the one who's fastest. Yes. So if you are fastest, you'll be the first driver. And if you do it for two or three races in a row, you'll definitely be. And it doesn't matter what his contract says and whether he's got number one printed on his forehead, he's going to be number two if you can blow him away. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's still the same. Yeah, yeah it's whatever still the it same. Is. And the whole, the whole, you know, if, if, if Weber could blow off Vettel for three races in a row or something, the whole team would just... Would, they yeah. can't help themselves. Yeah. <laughs> Guess who gets the best set of tyres? Guess who gets the best clutch? Who gets yeah. the best engine? Who gets the best mechanics? Yeah. Yeah. Who gets the most input you know, mm -hmm. from the team management? I'm going to talk to him more because now he's... It's just human nature. Yeah, it sure. Is. It is. Can I just ask you, when we're talking about, about Patty McLaren, in terms of people who've recently left us, Tyler also. Tyler, recently. Yeah. I yes, mean, Tyler. Tyler was a bit of an enigma to me. Tyler and I were very close, yeah. and we worked endless hours together, and we talked endless hours about racing cars. Mm -hmm. And he and Bruce and I were um, you know, very close. Mm -hmm. But in fact, we never socialised. 
Really? Know, hardly ever. Really? We didn't, you know, we didn't meet outside work. Huh. And Tyler had a whole life with Bruce. You know, he lived with Bruce mm, for mm, years. Mm. He actually lived in Bruce's yeah, house. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so they were very close and they talked obviously night and day. But I was never involved in that. Mm. I went home and I didn't talk to anybody in motor racing at all once I left the building. Not right, at all. Right. You know, I didn't even have a telephone conversation, hmm. you know, nothing. I just went clonk, back to Maidenhead, back to my wife and children. Mm -hmm. And then very briefly, of course, because mm -hmm. 90% of the time I was at work, <laughs> I never saw my children. My children just got bigger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they got longer because yeah, I was awake and gone before they were up. And yeah. then I came home, they were always in bed. Yeah. Bear, so. Bearing in mind how close you were to Bruce, um, when he died at Goodwood, were you tempted to quit? Very much so, yes. You were there. For a few hours. Oh, yes, I put the fire out. I took yeah. him out of the car. Yeah. I held him until the ambulance came. Yeah. I was me. Yeah. Me and one of the Can-Am mechanics. Sure. Because yeah. uh, we were running two cars that day. Yeah. And the fire engine, the fire engine didn't work. And uh, so I, I always used to keep a fire extinguisher and a tow rope in the boot of my car, which I kept in the pit road for that very reason. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Jim Stone and I drove around, yeah. put the car up, fire out, and picked Bruce out of the car. And uh, as I say, I held on to him until the end. Wouldn't let anybody else hot touch him until the ambulance came. Did you see the beginnings of the accident? Down yes. There? Yeah, people say it was on no, the far side it, of the Yeah, I saw it. Right. We didn't see the impact because no, you couldn't no, see it no. because it went behind no, the building. Sure. Yeah. But the car, the car came in view and the bodywork came you off. You saw the body. I saw work, the body yeah. come up. Yeah. The body popped up, lifted yeah. the back of the car off the ground. He was just a passenger, yeah. and he slid off. And the the marshal's post was like a gun yeah. redoubt. It was a half circle earth thing, yeah. which was very nice for the marshals. But of course, it was absolutely it was like concrete. Yeah. So he backed into that at 180 miles an hour or something, and came to stop in in a meter. Yeah. So the g-force was just too much room. Yeah. How did you how did you all pick yourselves up? Because uh, you know it's. Hard to imagine. It's a tiny group of people, very close. You know, how did you manage to pick yourselves up and get going? I don't know. Once again, see, I didn't socialise much. You know, with that thing. I, you know, I put the crash car in the truck. You know, literally, and the Formula One car, which was there, of course. And I drove the truck back to McLaren's, and parked it up, and went home, um, and obviously deeply distressed. Mm. But I went to work in the morning, and so did Tyler. Mm. Because yeah. I used to go to work at 7 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And uh, Tyler did as well. Yeah. We were the people who opened the factory every day. Yeah. We, didn't, we didn't need parking spaces. You know, we, were, we opened the place up. And um, so I went to work and so did he. Mm. Mm. And nobody said, oh, what are we going to do? Mm. I don't remember any. Other people tell you about inspirational stories from Denny Holm or lectures from Phil Kerr or no, rubbish. <laughs> we just went back to work and started work again. And it was it was just tactic that you know Bruce would have yeah. liked to have well, li liked to have to kept going. You know, I, put I, all this effort into it. Why would we stop? Well, I never knew him because he, he in fact he died the year before I before I started doing this. But it seems to me just from so many people I've talked to who like you, he seems to be one of those people who just left his mark on everybody he ever met. Yes, I mean you know he talks ill of the dead, but Bruce was genuinely a really nice man. Mm. Mm. And a great he was genuinely and a, great, a really and a great nice man. motivator and, and yeah, yeah, he was a leader amongst men, but yeah. he didn't go around. You know, he just did it. He yeah. was very good at it. Yeah, yeah. and he listened to everybody. Um, 
never, never rubbished anybody's opinion. Yeah. You know, he was a good leader amongst men. Everybody in the place uh, loved, yeah. Yeah. really liked him. Yeah. And he did silly things like, you know, as soon as the monocoque was made, you know, as soon as it was possible for it to be steady on the, on the jig, he would get in it and pretend to drive it. I go, ooh, and make engine noises and say, boy, this is going to be quick. <laughs> Ron, Ron Dennis doesn't do that, does he? I don't think so. No. no. And then nearly always when we finished a car, it would be an all-nighter, as we call them, and we would work, you know, and there would be, guess, chaos in the shop, whereas we just worked away. And Bruce would normally come uh, you know, early in the morning, and when the car was finished, we'd get in the car and we'd start it up, and inevitably he would go whoop, 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 and put two black stripes up the workshop floor. So when the staff came in in the morning, the car wouldn't be there, the big pile of rubbish where we'd been working, and two black stripes up to the door. Where the car's first, its, its first thing to do was to lay, was to lay rubber. Down the down the workshop. <laughs> let's let's move on to something complete, completely and utterly different, which is uh, we've got to talk to you about. Obviously, it was the arrival of James Hunt. We're talking uh, beginning of seventy six, end of seventy five. Now, um, I don't think all of you were totally convinced that this was the man. For oh, you. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, uh, the truth is that it's very difficult to assess racing drivers because racing drivers are so much a product of their of their team, and there's a lot of journalists and people who don't believe this, but this is true. You just got to look at the grid: two green cars, two blue cars, two white cars, two red cars. They're all in pairs because it's a team. The driver is almost immaterial. Always has been. Always will be. The least important person in the reigning racing team is the driver. You can machine gun everybody in the factory, including the drivers, and the next car race, the Mercedes cars will be on the front row of the grid. If, if, if what's his name, Lewis, and what's the other one's name? Nico. 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 They, if they, their helicopter crashes this afternoon, who's going to be on the front row of the first Grand Prix next year? Is it going to be Mercedes? Probably. It is, yeah. believe me, because their cars <laughs> are the best. Mm. The driver's immaterial virtually immaterial. You could take the slowest cars on the grid, the drivers out, put them in the McLarens, put them in the McLarens, and they would be crap. They, would no, they wouldn't qualify, and those boys would be, you know, taking two or three races. Uh, I'm quite serious about this. Hmm. Um, so when it's driverless cars racing... Well, it's virtually as now. <laughs> what, what do you mean, when? <laughs> when? <laughs> it is now. <laughs> well, in okay, it, okay, uh, in '76, uh, uh, people people were gravitated towards Mr. Hunt because of his flamboyant lifestyle. Oh, yes, we were. You know, we were watching James, and we could see him in the pit road. And he was obviously quite a good racing driver, and uh, and he was, you know, he was good fun, and his team was good fun. But I wouldn't have considerably you know, considered him. Uh, we were negotiating with uh, Fittipaldi, and Fittipaldi sure. was asking for a lot more money. Mm. He was asking for a 100% pay rise, mm. which Philip Morris, who paid him, indirectly or directly, uh, I don't know actually, because I didn't do the, you know, but you know, he was asking for a lot more money, and Philip Morris was saying no, and we were having, you know, we went testing at Paul Ricard, and Emerson said, Alistair, you've got to convince John, you know, uh, Philip yeah. Morris, that I have an alternative. And I said, well, they don't think you do. They think the music stopped because Grand Prix racing, as always, is like musical chairs. There's only so many seats, and everybody knows who's going to sit. You know, everybody knows whose ass is going to be on what seat. So the music had stopped, and the only place for Fittipaldi was sensible place was in his McLaren. Mm. So they were sticking to their guns about the money, and he was so. And then we got this bombshell 
it was a bombshell because he never yeah. gave us any inkling. It just came on the telex because back in those days we had the clack, 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 the telex machine. Jing, 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 came out this press release that he was going to drive for Copasuka. And so we were out of a driver. Meanwhile, at the same time, Mrs. Hunt, uh, you know, Mrs. Hathaway shirt lady, pulled the plug on, on Hesketh. So they were out of money and uh, James was out of a drive. So, so he rang me up and said, I think I'm your new driver. And I said, I think, yeah, you're, you're the obvious <laughs> choice. But you better talk to Teddy about the money. But it won't be much. <laughs> and it wasn't. That was one of his good motivators of the season, really, was he didn't get paid rock all. And so he was upset about this continuously. And, uh, <laughs> but you know, it was an ideal, fantastic opportunity for him. Uh, but we had no real knowledge of how quick it would be because you, the racing driver is so... Uh, governed by his team that you know the guy driving the Marisha is he way better than Lewis yeah. probably is but he's in the Marisha mm. you know and, ja and James was in this this team that sometimes was good sometimes was bad yeah. you know um, so you know how good he was mm. and we took him to Silverstone and we had to um, cut the ends of his shoes off you know to get him <laughs> oh in the yeah, car yeah. and uh, and he was too long because he was like we used to call him Quasimodo because he had this little short body <laughs> and big long legs so he, his legs wouldn't fit in the car so for Brazil we moved the front bulkhead an inch and a half forward moved the mast so he could get his legs in there and we went off to Brazil and I, and I, I sat with Jochen on the plane Jochen said Alistair who's going to be number one and, I said, you know, and we, we touched on this before I said number one's the fastest so if you're the fastest Jochen you'll be number one it doesn't matter who he is you know and uh, so we got to, to Monza uh, to um, Brazil into Lagos it was, fantastic racetrack. Yeah. And after mm -hmm. half an hour, Jochen came in and said, how am I doing? Because they didn't have the screens on that crap in those days, you know, <laughs> to tell your driver. I said, you're third. He said, where's James? I said, oh, he's eighth or something. Oh, he, he visibly <laughs> swelled up in the cockpit. <laughs> Off he went, another half an hour came by and he came in and says, how's it going now? And I said, not so good. I think you're 12th and James is on pole. <laughs> oh, he visibly deflated in the cockpit. Oh dear, because James was on pole. Yeah. So we knew he had, we, we'd done, you know, yeah, yeah. We, we'd made the right decision. Yeah. We, we, he was the obvious choice. <laughs> there were others. There was, uh, let me think, for example, X, and there was, you know, mm -hmm. experienced drivers. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, they were all kind of proven has-beens, really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Pro proven almost. <laughs> in, our, in our next issue of the magazine, we, we've got a bit of a special stuff, uh, some com content coming together on Mike Hellwood. Oh, yes. So if, if Mike hadn't had his accident at the Nürburgring in 74, do you think he could have led McLaren? Yes, yes, yeah. or oh, he would have got the job for sure, yeah. And yeah. um, was he good enough? Yeah, I think so, yeah, yeah, he was good, yeah. he was good. Um, uh, he was um, a bit relaxed about his motor racing, but mm -hmm. he might have got a bit more serious, you know, had he got the, the, the top slot, but mm -hmm. he was good enough, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Alistair, you mentioned, you painted a lovely picture of the kind of boys on tour ambience of the 1960s, obviously tinged with tragedy at times. Was there a specific time during the 70s when it stopped being as much fun and became more of a, and the, 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 com the commerce kind of became, began to outweigh the, uh, the, the, sort of the, the sort of spirited boyishness. Yes, I don't know, I don't really follow that one. I, you know, I understand what you mean, um, but it was always commercial. It was always a business. You know, we were in business, we were having to raise money, borrow money, you know, whatever, get sponsorship to go motor racing. Um, we just didn't get you know, enough to make it we were amateur, really, in a way, when you think back at it, you know, McLaren's, we used to, we used to do the American, and we used to do three races in, 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 in North America with three personnel. 
I mean, he took three people <laughs> for a two-car Grand Prix team. That was it. Yeah. It was a three-man team. Yeah. And one of those was old and tired and didn't want to work. So it was actually a two-car team. And we did everything. Who was we that? We prepared the cars and we took the spares down at the back. We took all the tyres down there. And then we took it all back again. Then we worked all night and then we did that. We loved it. Mm. It was so stupid. It was just stupid. I mean, who thought that, that three guys could run a Grand Prix team but on when their own with no support from the management? <coughs> management would just turn up in the morning, how's it goes, kick the tyres, get them drive, and then bugger off back yeah, to the golf course. Yeah, yeah. And we thought, oh, there we were, completely knackered, and we never complained. We loved it. We got yeah. paid rock all. So, yes, it was like that, but some people, it just gradually came that people thought, this is stupid. You know, Ferrari started to do it. Ferrari's had 30 people at the racetrack. You know, we had 11. You know, they had two lawyers. We didn't have anybody. You know, we didn't have a PR person. We didn't even like journalists. We chased them away. We told them to bugger off because we were too busy to even talk to them. There was only two or three journalists that I would talk to. Ones were sensible ones. But of course, we had some. We should have had somebody talking to all of them, even the really stupid ones, the ones from the local newspaper who wanted to know what the drivers had for breakfast. Somebody should have been telling them they eat cornflakes. Yeah, you know, whatever. We should have, but we didn't. We chased them away. Go away. You know. And uh, we just talked to the professionals because there were two or three who you know, really followed it and knew exactly. Because that was one of my problems. My problems was that I, without trying to be too big, I was aware of everything that was going on. I still am, but in those days I was very, very aware of everything that was going on. I didn't need to talk about it at all. Now, a lot of people need to talk about things they're doing, but I never did. And I used to try and hire people who also didn't need to talk about it. So you had this group of tap-turn-looking, you know, Austro you who didn't say anything but won the World Championship. Because you didn't need to talk about it, you just needed to do it. And I didn't like my boys talking to anybody because then they gave away information. Really, seriously, yeah. you know, we just don't stay like a little club. But don't talk to anybody because as soon as you talk to anybody, even a journalist, you give away stuff. Yeah. Teddy was terrible. <laughs> Teddy gave technical because he wanted to have his ego inflated he would tell them oh yeah we're doing this and we're doing that be quiet <laughs> shut up <You> know? <laughs> anyway well, actually, yeah, so i don't remember any kind of step it just gradually got more professional teams hired more and more people including clarence you know we we got bigger and bigger and mm. bigger but still tiny by today's and and it got more commercial you know that all the tobacco company came in and there was more money mm. involved started to talk of millions of dollars instead of thousands of dollars and so on. But I don't remember any kind of, you know, It didn't become any less fun as a result? Yes, it did. In the end, I stopped having fun. But that was probably the kind of classic thing where I got promoted to a, to a situation where I was incompetent, which happens in many companies. And, um, you yeah, I should have been left doing what I used to do. But they gave me an office upstairs and I wore a jacket and a tie and I ran the company and I was not interested in running the company. I wanted to run the race team, build the mm. race cars. Mm. Mm. And that's why I left McLaren's, because we were going downhill, because Teddy was doing my job and I was doing his job. We did a role reversal, which he wanted, because he wanted to be the star mm. car builder, and he was useless at it. And um, so after a couple of years of this, I said, this is stupid, you know, we should do, I'm gonna wear boots and jeans, have my office downstairs with the big window where I can see what everybody's doing, you get back upstairs and we'll win the world championship again. And he said, no, 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 we're not gonna do that. And he just kept hiring more and more people to do my job, instead of having me, you know, they had now had half a dozen guys, yeah. had, a, had a committee doing what I used to do all on my own, because I said, do that, do that, which is, when you're a small company, it's very good to have somebody who just 
You sure. know, sometimes they're wrong, but most of the time, just having something to say. Anyway, we fell out over this because I wanted to go back and do how, how we used to do. And he you, wanted to stay in charge, so I left. You went to work for Brabham, and we'll come to that mm. in a minute. But, yeah. but <coughs> we're, we're now going to get a bit deeper into 1976, Alistair, mm -hmm. because it's, as I said earlier, it's 40 years since, since uh, yeah. that, that incredible season. And uh, we're going to look back at Brands Hatch 76 in the July. Are you? Would you like to take over this? Or I'll just explain briefly, Rob. Yeah. Um, so what we're going to do our July issue. Um, obviously, time of the British Grand Prix is always July. Mm -hmm. Seemed like a good time to do a bit of a celebration of Brands Hatch and that incredible race in 76, which for a lot of people was the kind of the start of the modern era in the sense that the the you know the, the Sun readers were suddenly engaging in motor racing the wider public it wasn't just about yeah. uh, the enthusiasts and uh, obviously that amazing day with the the cans on the track and everything that happened that day yeah. it's a story that's been told many times and we've we've been over it many times um, yeah. you know, when the Rush film came out we talked about it again um, so what we thought this time we'd do is ask uh, you the listeners and the readers of motorsport to tell us about your memories of '76 and Brands Hatch '76 uh, many of you would have been there. Um, I was only two, I'm afraid, so uh, I I, uh, I don't remember it. Uh, sorry, I had to put that. Uh, but uh, I was um, 32. But we'd, we'd <laughs> and in my prime. <laughs> we'd, we'd love we'd love you to tell us stories about um, your memories of that that weekend, that day. Uh, were you one of the guys that threw cans and bottles on the track? Um, I'm not looking at you, Rob, at all. Don't worry. No, uh, I have the photographs. Just, just uh, we want to basically. Get you to tell the story for once, rather than just do the do the, do the usual um, yeah. story from 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 the paddock side. Great get, idea. get the public to tell us about it as well. Great idea. Um, and just for those of you who may be new to our motorsport podcast, that was our our editor Damien Smith, who obviously is in charge of what goes into the magazine, speaking to you there. And uh, let me remind you that if you want to get in touch about Brands Hatch, 1976, then there's a hashtag. And it's hashtag Brands76. That's Brands, as in Brands Hatch, 76, figure seven, figure six. On social media, that's Twitter and Facebook and all of, all of you know, everybody knows all about that. And, but if no, you don't, don't, no, I know you don't, Nigel, but, but that's a different, uh, let's not go there. Nigel has, Nigel has come all the way to North London from his hideaway somewhere in Surrey or Sussex. Well, they don't have hashtag down there, I don't think. But anyway. They have it. They have it. I okay, but apart, apart, <laughs> <laughs> apart from the editor-in-chief, Nigel Roebuck... Hashtag, hashtag Luddite. You can, use, you can use hashtag Brands76 on Twitter and Facebook. Or, if you don't want to do that, you can always email us, at, which is editorial at motorsportmagazine, one word, dot com. Editorial at motorsportmagazine.com. Com. And just to remind you, please get in touch because we want you to be in Motorsport magazine. It's usually all of us all the time. Now it's your turn. So if you were there, Brands, the big hot summer of 76, who can ever forget it? My God, what a fantastic weekend that was. Anyway, if you were there, please get in touch on the hashtag or the email. Now, one man who was absolutely at the epicentre of that of that weekend is Alastair Caldwell, who's our guest today. And by this stage of the season, things between uh, McLaren and Ferrari were getting a little bit tense, weren't they, Alistair? Well, they always were. 
remember we've been at it with them for several years now it was Ferraris you know the top of Grand Prix racing was Ferraris versus McLarens in those days 74 75 so it was an ongoing thing Uh, 76 um, their car was actually probably very, was very good. Anyway, um, so yes, there was definitely tension between the two of us, and they had, they had full time lawyers mm. who travelled with them all the time. We didn't, and uh, you know, so they had they were into politics, which we weren't. We didn't play politics at all, and uh, which was foolish, of course. When we touched on this a minute ago. We should have had we should have had a sure. lawyer, and we should have had a PR person, but we didn't. Anyway, so seventy six. Yes, uh, I'm interested in that because there's so many journalists, so many stories, books written even, and it's all disinformation in my opinion maybe I'm wrong but I'm pretty clear exactly what happened in 76 because I, I was the the orchestrator of it all um, you know I didn't start the accident of course the two Ferraris ran into yes. each other yes. uh, Clay tried to go around the outside yes. and Nicky didn't make it ran over him chaos ensued sued. James ran over the back of Clay's car car flew up in the air way way up in the air Philip Morris were always disappointed they didn't have Philip Morris (laughs) (laughs) underneath of the car because it was in every newspaper in the world. They they did seriously talk about putting Philip Morris, you know, Marlborough underneath the car. So (laughs) next time it flew through the air, it would be on (laughs) anyway. And um, the car landed on its left front and bent the left front wishbone. So the, the wheels were now like this and the, and the toe-in was you know, massively gone awry. The wheels, the front wheels were pointing the wrong way. But being James, uh, not all the other drivers would have pulled over on the side of the road. But being James, with those two pints of adrenaline still to go, which he always had, um, he set off around the racetrack and he set off up Paddock Hill to Druids. And this was followed by the TV because the TV was yeah. following James mm-hmm. Hunt, not, mm-hmm. yeah, and Nicky and maybe Clay, I don't know, but no, Nicky, Nicky went off and yeah. James followed him up the hill and he went round uh, Druids and came down the hill and by now already the marshals had the cross flags out, yeah. races stopped yeah. and the big gantry lights at the top of the start finish line were banging red. So the race was stopped. So we already into race stopped mode, you know, races stopped, now what do we do? And already I knew instantaneously that I couldn't start my G car the training car that's against the rules. Mm-hmm. In Grand Prix racing then, only cars that were taking part in the race when it was stopped could start again. So the cars mm-hmm. that were crashed at the start were not in the race because they weren't taking part when it was stopped. But James was definitely taking part in the race when it was stopped because the f- cameras were running. Mm-hmm. You can see it on the TV, cross flags, and he's driving his car. There it is, and he drove it down the hill. And because the race was stopped, he pulled in behind the pits, and the brand's hatch is very short. It's steep, but it's, you know, it's 50 feet, really. It's 100 yards or less, just down the hill. And he ran up the hill, found me. You've seen that on the film, because he comes running with the helmet with his hair flying, and says, the car's destroyed. Because racing drivers always tell you this. The opposite in life is always the truth. He said, the car's finished. And I said, okay, sadly, we'll get the T-car out and put it on the grid, but we won't be allowed to start because that's against the rules, but we'll do it. So we got the T-car and the boys with the T-car took it out and I went myself, I strolled down the hill, I didn't race and found the car, which was just parked there. And the front wishbone was bent and otherwise the car was perfect. So I ran back up the hill and because we had very few employees, I took the six mechanics off the three cars and said, get that car and change the left front suspension. I got the truck driver, get the suspension, a wishbone, a da-da-da-da, bring a set of 
front suspension and they pushed the car into the garage mm. and they started work. Meanwhile, there was now a stewards meeting going on. Dean Delamont, I think it was, yeah. from the RAC, mm. had called a, a, a meeting and all the team managers were in there, including Teddy and Odetta, of course, and Ferraris, everybody, and Tyrrells, Ferrari, uh, Ligier, Surtees, all these teams had T-cars on the grid, which were not allowed to start the race, legally. So I went in and all the team managers, including mine, Teddy, owner, were saying, we, we must start the T-cars. And I joined in, said, yeah, must be able to start T-cars, must start T-cars. I didn't tell Teddy, we're trying to fix the race car, because right. Teddy was hor would have said, we're trying to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't tell him. <laughs> So then I tore back to the garage and oversaw the, the, the repairing of the mm. car, tore back to the meeting and went, we'll start our T-car, T-cars forever. And now coming on the, on the PA system was that James Hunt was not going to be allowed to start the race because yeah. he was in his T-car. So people started to get upset. The crowd was getting upset and started to run, chant and throw stuff. We want Hunt, we want Hunt. And yeah, this was all good stuff because this was putting pressure on the RAC and so on. But it was still quite unequivocal. T cars would not be allowed to start the race. Mm. But I went back to the meeting and said, yeah, we'll all agree. Yeah, they were all arguing. We'll all agree. We'll all sign a form that says T cars are allowed to start. And of course, the people who didn't have T cars didn't know. Sorry. <laughs> an edit. An edit coming here. <laughs> Hopefully you can edit this. <laughs> I started again. I went and said, yeah, and they said, oh, we'll sign the form. And of course, all the people who had cars that, that who didn't have T cars in the grid said, no way. Yeah. No, no, we want them taken off because yeah. everybody in Grand Prix racing is only ever just interested in their own personal business. It's still the same. They'll never, ever look at the picture, which is why Bernie still rules the place. He rules because they're so stupid. They will never form a consensus amongst themselves. And he knows this, so he just plays them off against each other. But we've jumped around now. So, so I went back to my car, got it fixed, drove it myself through all the people. If you see it in the film going, blah, 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 that's me driving it because I used to drive them all the time. Oh, I drove it down, reversed it up on the grid, and we had left any home who was a visitor there, paid for it because he only came if he was paid, because um, <laughs> he was an um, uh, observer or something for the, for the John... Stuart, maybe start of the way yeah. they start to have experts. Yeah. Anyway, he was invited there. So we left him with James and said, just sit here, don't let the marshals move the car. They tried to move the car, jam the brakes on them and, and tell them to go away politely Oops. and just keep it here mm. as, a, as a block. And it worked. Well, they didn't try to move it. And uh, so we pushed the T car out of the way, put the proper race car, which was the car that started the race. So it was allowed to restart the race because it was taking part in the race yep. when it was stopped went back to the meeting and said, we've taken our T car off the grid. I didn't say, and I've put my race car on. I just said, we've, t and Teddy was like, what? I said, yeah, we've taken our T car off the grid. We agree. <laughs> but they started the race with all the other T cars on the grid, yeah. which was interesting, because yeah, Dean said, you know, we can't do this because one of them <laughs> crashes or finishes in the points. You know, what yeah, are well, we going to do? One of them was Clay, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So anyway, they started the race. James started in his race car. And he won the race. It yeah. was a bit, it was a bit uh, screw-if because the boys didn't have time to, to really set it up. So he took him a few laps to get used to the handling because it was handling better way, one way than the other because the wheel weights were all you know, screwed up. Yeah. And then he passed Nicky and won the race fair and square. Mm -hmm. 
So James Hunt won the British Grand Prix in the car that started the race at absolutely 100%. And interestingly enough, because I can extrapolate, the only car that should have been on the grid was James Hunt. Only car that could have started legally the British Grand Prix, because the rules then said, when you're shown the red flag, you must stop where you are. Not finish the lap, the rules said quite unequivocally, stop where you are. But always people used to drive slowly round to the grid. Yeah. But Nicky didn't. Nicky tried to get the race not started. Nicky was a smart boy. Yeah. He knew the red flags were out, but he kept racing and they kept racing and he raced over the top of Paddock. You see it, there it is on the video. He comes full speed over Paddock because he's trying to get them to change their minds, which has happened before. There had been other Grand Prix where the red flag had been put out, everybody kept racing, they all went, oh, okay, let's switch it off again. So Nicky was trying that one on, and you see in the movie that the marshals are going, stop, 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 stop. So he skids to a halt and does another lap. Still under a rule that says you must stop where you are and does another lap. So Nicky did two laps under the red flag. He crossed the start-finish line at full speed under the red flag, didn't get disqualified and was allowed to start the race. So I can extrapolate that the only person that should have started the British Grand Prix on his own on the grid, because it was the only legal car, was James Hunt. And there was nothing in the rules that said you had to complete that lap. The opposite. Yeah. It said you had to stop where you are, which is what he did. Yeah. Now, Ferraris played the politics and invented a rule which didn't exist. And when they had the tribunal at the Place de la Concorde, the three old geriatrics got led in. We should just make clear that this, this, this hearing in Paris was... Was later, was in, way later in the year. Just, the before, just before the Canadian Grand Prix. Before, yeah. We were testing at Mossport when the news came through. And that was one of the few times that James fell out with Nicky. Yeah because Nicky was taken by Ferraris to the Place de la Concorde, sat in the seat outside with a bandage, a big white bandage with stage blood on it. I'm not making this up. So when the three old boys came, they were introduced to Saint Nicky, the man who'd risen from the dead, with the bloody bandage. Oh my God. They went in and said, and all we did was show the movie of James driving the car at Brands. And we had the, 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 the director from the TV company to say that this was unretouched. Yeah, this was, because that was the only possible argument to have him out of the race, that he wasn't taking part in the race when it was stopped, but he was. There was the flags, the light, James driving his car. So as far as we're concerned, there was no case to answer. We couldn't imagine what Ferraris were on about. Ferraris told the boys that you had to finish that lap, and James didn't finish that lap, which is the opposite of the truth, and therefore would be excluded. So they excluded him. It's an absolutely, yeah. That, I believe, is yeah. the actual true story. Right. But uh, I may be stand corrected. I've never seen any journalist write the right story. Mm. They're always different from that. Mm. Mm. Well, just to, re just to repeat um, that we really want you, you, you guys out there, you're listening to us today, and, and tell your friends that you can uh, join in this story yourselves. You were there, and some, lots of you must have been there. And... Um, Alistair, as we, as we heard, right in the thick of it. But my God, the crowd were fantastic. There. They were fantastic. Because the, the little bit I was telling you about running from the meeting to fix the car, the, the people in the stands, the 10,000 people there, sussed it. They knew exactly what I was yeah. doing. Nobody else did, but the yeah. people in the stands said, look, 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 they've got the race car. Oh, they're fixing it. And I ran down here, and then they came back, and each time I came back, they cheered some more. Mm. And then we actually started the car up and drove it forward. And then I realised that 
Steve Bunn, where are you, Steve? He's out there somewhere. Uh, he was doing the, the, uh, the toe-in with a, this thing called a Dunlop gauge, and in his excitement, he'd got a deg whole degree out. You know, so it was it was 10 minutes, but it was a degree in 10 minutes. And I realized the front wheels were like that, you know, in snowplow. So, oh, put it back in the garage. And the crowd all went, oh, they understood. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was nearly fixed. And then we, we adjusted the toe in properly and I drove it in the cab. Because yeah. now, so you had that running commentary from 10,000 yeah, people who had sussed out what I was doing. The, the meeting hadn't sussed it out. Yeah. None of, no, no official dumbers had sussed out what I was doing, but the crowd had. Uh, just for fun, just for fun, let's jump forward to Fuji at the end of the year, where James won the World Championship, and, yeah. which I know is a, is a whole story in itself. Yeah, yeah, but it's, the fact it's is, a lifetime in between. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> I know. But well, we'll get you back. We'll get you back when you when you're not rallying. But anyway. I know that the crowd there was a big, big factor as well, wasn't it? Because yes, and, th and that was created by us. Yes, um, that was fascinating. Because uh, it was, was terrific. We, had, we yeah. had a young man called Lance Gibbs, who's where are you, Lance? He's in he's in uh, Indianapolis. He he has a, a car livery company. He does stickers and stuff. I think he's retired now, but he had a very successful company in uh, in Indy, which did all the, the logos and stickers and stuff for, for Indy cars. Anyway, Lance Gibbs, New Zealander, uh, never wore shoes, always wore flip-flops, very Kiwi. And, uh, and we call him the entertainment officer because he did all the sign writing and helped with the tires, but he was also, you know, entertainment officer. And um, we were we had James and Nicky in the tower at Fuji arguing with the stewards that the race should not be held, mm. vehemently, mm. insistently, along with Jarier, who was the, uh, the other member of the um, safety committee. When there's a joke, <laughs> <laughs> mad dog Jarier. <laughs> anyway, the three of them, but. Nicky and James arguing, and I would say to James, what are you doing? He said, oh, no, it's far too wet, old chap. You know, we can't possibly race. I said, yeah, come on, you've got to race, otherwise we can... Oh, no, 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 no. He was absolutely adamant we shouldn't race. So I was going up to the tower with Bernie and arguing with the, and going back down again because only Bernie and I were really excited having the race run, and the two drivers, Nicky and James, were trying actively not to have it run. And we had 20,000 Japanese in the stands who were totally enigmatic, doing nothing, just sitting there. They'd been there for hours in the rain and the cold. And I was getting my cars to start every 20 minutes or something and rev the engines up, which would make all the others start. Because they didn't know why, but whoop, 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 whoop. And the whole pit road would be going whoop, 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 whoop. And then it stopped off again. And I was trying to get, nothing was happening. So I said to Lance, Lance, do you think you could get this crowd going you know, in some way? And he said, oh, I'll give it a go. And we had things called Acme Thunders, which you look up on the internet. There's a company called ACME, which builds whistles. And they build thousands of whistles. You can imagine the different kinds of whistles you can buy. <laughs> but there's a thing called an Acme Thunderer, which is a referee's whistle. This is yeah, the one you, yeah. that's used in the premiership worldwide. It's made by an English company. And I had bought these for my boys because they used to drive the car, push the cars around the paddock and injure people because there was silent death mm. and the front wing would trap people by the ankle and oh. Mm. oh. So I said, you've got to have the whistles and go beep, 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 beep. So they liked this. And they all had one. So then they had a, a band, you know, they, they used to practice. Boop, 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 boop. And they, they used to play with their whistles and use them on airplanes and cause all kinds of trouble with their whistles. They liked them. Anyway, so Lance stood on top of the armco in front of all these Japanese, hung his arms out and went boop, 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 boop. 
And by a miracle, 200 Japanese had whistles. There were referees or there were rape alarms. I don't know. Lots of them had whistles. So they went, boop, 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 boop. So we went, beep, 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 boop, boop, beep, beep, beep. And they went, boop, 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 boop. And he had this orchestra going here. They were imitating whatever he was doing. He was good on his whistle. So now we had all these Japanese really, really interested in Lance. They were all like, you know, something was entertainment now. Uh, otherwise, it would be nothing. So then I said to him, see if you can teach them to slow clap. So he went, <laughs> and they all went. <laughs> Off they went. And I don't know if you've ever been involved in this, but as you go faster and faster, it gets louder and louder, yeah. and then people can't keep pace. And when you get to a so many beats per minute, it breaks up, and it makes a huge noise. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the yeah. lack of simplification goes, whoa. Yeah. And the crowd thought, that's nice. That's interesting. Let's do that again. So I left Lance doing this again. <laughs> yeah. And now we had this clapping and this whoa, and then again and again, because they, they were cold, bored, and now they had this activity. Well, this Lance was doing, standing there in his flip-flops. So I, I went back up to the tower, Bernie was there, and Bernie said, what's that? I said, we've got the crowd going, fantastic. And got the stewards came on, yeah, yeah, this small Japanese Asian gentleman, and said, look, you've got a ride in your hands, mate. <laughs> You better start the race, otherwise there'll be bodies everywhere. They're really upset down there. And they're all, yeah, yeah, race. Boom, boom. Result. So I can honestly say, without a lie, that Lance Gibbs won the world championship from McLaren. Because he got the crowd going, the crowd got noisy, and the stewards got disturbed by this. They didn't like the fact that the crowd was excited. A bit like Rantach with the with the you know, seven, same thing as him, yeah. and so they started the race in the dark. Needed headlights, really. I just love the idea of two hundred Japanese referees in the grandstand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why they had whistles, but they did. Yeah, they had yeah, key yeah. whistles, yeah, you know, yeah. the, not you know, yeah. Boop, 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 boop. And so this concert went on. <laughs> I'll be quiet. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I mean, we uh, we could we uh, we could talk about McLaren in those days until it gets dark tonight. It's just so much fun. But I, it, it, I think it's great. If only we had some crowd involvement in modern Grand Prix racing, it would just be just be great. Anyway. So some cr some or crowd would be a start, yeah. or even some driver <laughs> involvement. Even some driver involvement. Okay, um, some involvement would be good. <laughs> Actually. Alistair, the, uh, excuse me, Rob, interrupting one second. I'm sorry to disturb the chronology, but just something. When you were talking about you, when you were driving the car to the grid at Brands, I'm taking you back now to 68, to, to, to McLaren's first Grand Prix win at Spa. I'm sure, forgive me if I'm misremembering this, I'm sure I remember you telling me about driving the car from the paddock back to yes because the garage was in spa we had a garage away. at momoldi we had a garage which was a ford agency right at the bottom of the circuit yeah the far end because there was no pits didn't you, know, you drive the car down master yes we yeah. used to do a lap a day <laughs> we used to get in the cars in the morning warm them up and then drive them you know walk cold if you like to the pits park them in the pits and then after practice everything was good we'd get in the cars and do the second half of the lap and now it was fully manned Marshalls, because there was going to be another race in a minute or whatever. And we used to go quick. And we used to really fly down that straight. And that was the old straight, which had a kink in it. It had a railway line and a kink. It was impressive, I tell you. And then we used to choose the revs we'd do. A little guy called Alan McCall and I. And we would say, OK, today we'll do nine grand. And then we'd get the pits and have a look at the ratio chart. 
Oh, was that fast or what? <laughs> Tomorrow we'll do 9.2, which was 175 miles an hour, whatever, because the cars in those days are just as quick as they are now. Mm. You yeah. know, they had a lot less horsepower, but they had a lot less drag. There was no wings on the car. Now, you know, they, they, did, two, they did 180 miles an hour, whatever, in those days. And, uh, yeah, so we used to go pretty quick down that straight, and that was the straight with the, with the, with the, with the, railway, line, with the railway line and the kink. <laughs> no helmets, no. hairs, you know. And, uh, and yeah, I like that story because in 67, um, or 68 was it, Bruce won Spa in his own car. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that um, cemented my position again in the company was that he turned up from the Can-Am race with some drive shafts which he had made for the Formula One cars. He knew the length, you know, he had the drawing or whatever. And we, they had these very light pot joints they're called with a single pin which do both the plunge and the turning, and they're half the weight, and the drive shafts we had, which were made by an company, English company, BRD, I think they were going to be, they're horrible things, heavy, horrible, unreliable, but it was all we had, you know. And so he came with these new lightweight drive shafts, and stupidly, we put them straight on the cars. He said, put them on. So we put them on, and we did practice, we did the two days of practice. We drove the cars down to the garage, and uh, little Al, um, had no engine change, I had an engine change, we had virtually two people per car, that's it. Mm -hmm. Most two mechanics mm -hmm. per car, dirt floor in a garage, yeah. And I changed my engine along with uh, Jim Murdoch, who was my uh, guy I worked with, and little Al, who had more time in his time, took one of these drive shafts apart and found that they had slightly galled inside. You know, they'd, what we call picked up, they'd got, they'd, anyway, they, they, there was a little bit of damage. He said, oh, it's no problem, I'll just stone that off, re-grease them, they'll be great. And I said to Jim, I don't think so, take ours off. So we unbolted ours, put them in the truck and put the horrible big heavy ones back on. And we did another half lap back to the pits and Bruce came to work in the morning, rolling along on his short leg and said, uh, and he instantly picked it up, said, oh, Where's the drive shafts gone? And I said, I, little Al had a bit of slight problem with one of his and I've taken them off. He said, oh, I don't think so. He went to talk to little Al, little Al told him, yeah, they're gonna be great. So he came back to me and said, Alistair, you know, put the drive shafts back on. I said, I don't think there's enough time. He said, there's an whole hour, you know, you could do it 10 times. I said, oh yeah, but things might go wrong. Might strip a thread, might, uh, something, uh, best not to play with it now. So, after some discussion, he got upset, and the only time I've ever had him upset, because his normal man management, which was to, was to, which was to persuade me to do this, yeah. I refused, basically. I didn't refuse, I just kept making excuses. Yeah. So he stomped off, which he didn't do well, but he went, <laughs> and he stomped off. And everybody in the team went, whoa, you, know, you pushed the boat out a bit there. I said, oh yeah, but you know, I believe it's the right thing to do. Oh, he was angry. I mean, he never did angry. This is very, very unusual. Yeah. So, started the race, and Denny was super confident for whatever reason. Denny only won races. He was super confident, and he probably had a softer compound or you know, he, he was running second, I think, to somebody like Fittipaldi or something. But he was obviously going to win the race, you know, because that was Denny. He was right there. He's going to win this race. He's just going to follow this this turkey until he's ready, and then he's off. And so he. We ran second, I think. I don't think he ever led it, but he was certainly running and was going to win it. And then after 30 laps or whatever, I mean, you'd have to look it up in the books. Mm. He, he came in, right-hand drive shaft was melted. And, uh, and Bruce was fifth, I think. 
Yeah. He was in the points. Yeah. And then with a couple of laps to go, I think, as usual, half the cars ran out of fuel. Mm -hmm. They always did at Monza, at Spa. You can't imagine how stupid racing teams are. They would start, <laughs> they would start the race with not enough fuel in them. Anyway, and uh, he was fifth, then he was fourth, then he was third. And then with a lap to go, I realized that the car that was leading didn't come around. So I put P1 on the board before I even knew, you know, because the who was leading, I forget now, you could look it up, you know, and put out P1, yes. And he came by and he didn't really believe it, a bit like uh, James at, at, um, yeah. at uh, uh, Fuji. Fuji. He came in the pits and he stood up in the pit and he said, first, I said, yeah, yeah, you won the race, fantastic. You know, McLaren and the McLaren, brilliant. And he said, what happened to Denny? And I said, drive shaft. <laughs> there was no, not another word was spoken. It was good enough. That, so from then on, you know, if I wanted to do something, more or less, yeah, you know, yeah. if I thought it was a good idea, it would stay a good idea. Because he won it because he didn't have these drive yeah. shafts yeah, on yeah, his yeah, car. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> okay, well look, we, we're, we're, we're rather running out of time. Um, but I very much hope that when you've finished your world tour in 2016 in your Rolls Royce or your Ford Escort or your Ferrari or whatever, you will come back to motorsport headquarters in Hampstead and talk to us again, will you? Yeah, sure. Good. Yeah, yeah, I love talking. Good. Especially, especially about you, know, all those days, because well, we had good times. So they were good times. And th these are the days that you refer to, I know, as BR, aren't they? Yeah, before Ron. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of a nice joke, really, isn't it? Anyway, um, before we, uh, I must just say, and I'm looking at our website editor, Ed Foster, as I speak, that we haven't had time for our readers' questions. Now, uh, Time for one or two. Okay, okay, time for one or two. Well, uh, one comes in from um, Wim Beert, which sounds Belgian, and uh, he wants to know what went wrong with McLaren after 76. You know, what... Uh, yeah, yeah, everybody's, yeah. After 76, what happened was the Can-Am faded away because Porsche came and destroyed the McLaren thing and people didn't like watching Porsches win Can-Am. Um, they liked McLaren's winning McLaren, but they didn't like Porsche's winning, so they all went home. So that faded away. And uh, so this big stream of revenue and interest from McLaren's died away. Mm. So Teddy and Tyler, but particularly Teddy in my case, came home. Tyler stayed with the Indy cars, but Teddy came back to Europe and decided he wanted to run, run my team, which was the Grand Prix team. And he used to come as a guest, if you like. He would turn up, but he'd been busy with Can-Am or Indy. So he would turn up and interfere with what I was doing, but not enough to, to destroy it. But when he came back, he literally took my job and promoted me. And I believe that the team just went steadily downhill from then, then on. And the more he got involved and the more people he hired to help him, the less effective we got. And uh, for sure we would have recovered. In fact, I think they started to recover. Then we won the British Grand Prix with Watson in 81. So, you know, it wasn't all bad. It wasn't all bad. But, but I also had stopped enjoying myself as well. Uh, the team wasn't doing so well, in my opinion, and also I'd stopped enjoying myself because I wasn't doing what I used to do. I was, you know, dealing with hire cars and hotels and administration, whereas I wanted to build racing cars, which I thought I was very good at. So I decided to stop, and so I quit. Mm -hmm. So I would have said the lack of success in Can-Am meant that Teddy com concentrated too much on the Grand Prix team, and he wasn't a good influence. Mm -hmm. And because he was the boss, he could, yeah. he could 
you know, it wasn't like Bruce. It was different. With Bruce, mm. I could have won, but with Teddy, I, would, I wouldn't win. Teddy would say, no, no, we're going to do it like this. I'd go, okay. It's, it's, it's interesting how a racing team can, can quite quickly go downhill, can't it? Yes, it's all about people. Your race teams are all about people, nothing about buildings or cars. It's all just about people. If you've got the right people, mm. you know, and most Grand Prix teams, there's probably only two or three people who are actually important. You know, there's a thousand people at McLaren's, but only 900 and you can do without 980 of them. There's, you know, there's, the, 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 there's the top management who are the important people. This is where you see this with Russ Braun and, and Rhett Newey and so on. Um, you know, if you have this dominant, really clever person, then they win the world championship. You know, they, um, yeah, it's all about people. Sure. Any business is all about people. Yeah, absolutely. Quite, quite a few of our readers, and I'm just trying to pick out the, the most popular questions, really. Want to know about being at Brabham and, and I mean, very, very different days. Oh, Brabham was a totally different deal, you know, because we had Bernie, of course. And, uh, but I went to Brabham because I wanted to work with Gordon Murray because uh. Gordon Murray is a genius, yeah. which he is. Um, and uh, he's a very clever man and I admired, so I wanted to work with him. But it didn't really work that well because we, we won the World Championship. I taught them how to win the World Championship. I wasn't there when they won the World Championship, but I taught them how to do it. Because uh, when I went to Brabham's, they were a team that just wanted to be fast. And it was very interesting that I'm amazed, like football teams, you know, Fulham stay Fulham, even though they've had 10 different managers, and Brabham stayed Brabham's. You know, Jack was totally silly in that Jack put all the new stuff on his car and his car broke down and Denny Holm won the World Championship. Yeah. And even, even with that example, he couldn't stop himself. And you don't win the World Championship by putting all the new stuff on your car. Uh, you win the World Championship by having your car reliable and then you put new stuff on it. And when I went to Brabham's, all they wanted to do was win races. And you don't win championships by trying to win races, which is what all they wanted to do. N Nelson, uh, Gordon and Bernie all wanted to put the new stuff on the car. And I had to fight tooth and nail with them to make the car reliable. Really, it was an uphill battle. Mm. But I won and they won the World Championship. Mm. But they had no idea. And they soon regressed. Yes, I would indeed. say yeah. that once I left, yeah. took them a couple of seasons and they went back to doing their old ways of sometimes winning races, sometimes being hopeless. You know, they, had, they lost the consistency and they lost the reliability again. Mm. And being consistent and being reliable, now it's so much easier for them because they've got 10, 000, thousands of people doing the reliability and so on. Whereas in my day, it was just me at McLaren's. You know, I did all the changing of all the components sure. just by, a, by instinct almost. Yeah. Now they have people who are lifing every component. They change the components every day and so on. And, but well, I can go on for hours. But they're so stupid, of course, that they don't need to do that. All they have to do is put the weight of the car up by a couple of hundred kilos and uh, all their troubles would be over. But they're too stupid for that. Okay, right. We'll take, we'll take, we'll take one more question. But I must, just, I must just say thank you very much, everybody, for sending in your questions. And I, I must apologise, we haven't got through many. But I, th I hope and I think you'll agree that we've had a great time with Alistair Caldwell. And uh, next month we'll, 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 look, we'll deal with more of your questions. But we'll take, we'll take one last one, um, which is uh, about Nelson Piquet. Um, now, I know you, uh, people have very, very widely differing views about Nelson Piquet, don't they? Yes, I, 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 once again, I read this, um, <laughs> but to me, Nelson was 
probably to me the best race, my best racing driver. Really? Of That's all the people that drove for me. Really? Nelson was fantastic. Right. He was. There's a question. Because he, yes. uh, he was in his early days you know, with Brabham's, and, and he was enthusiastic, fast, funny. We had a lot of fun. You, as a team, Gordon, we were like a little family, and he was brilliant. He was a very good racing driver, very fast, good tester. Worked N hard, didn't he? Hmm? He worked hard. He worked hard. He worked hard, and and he was fun. You know, he didn't. He wasn't dour. You know, he we had fun. You know, we we rolled in the sand, if you like. You know, we we played, yeah. but also we played really hard. And he's a very quick racing driver and smart. Mm. He's a good boy. You know, I would rate him as the best, my best driver. I mean, James was good, but James wouldn't work. James was lazy, um, didn't want to do testing. He said he wanted to do testing. James knew exactly what racing drivers should do. You know, he had a manual. Uh, you know, he, Nicky, he knew what Nicky did, so he, but he, he didn't have the, you know, he just got out of the car, really wanted to just go home. And that's what we should have done. We should have got somebody else, Mass or somebody else to, you know, like they do now. They have, a, you know, they have junior drivers who do the testing, whatever. But in those days, we didn't have any of that. We didn't even have a test team. Anyway. Nelson to me was the best, right? My best, my best racing driver, from a kind of social, trying, speed, enthusiasm. He was so keen. He was like a little game dog. Yeah. <laughs> and boy, boy, the, boy, those Brabhams were such beautiful Grand Prix cars, weren't Though they? No, I did forget one thing there. I did forget because he never got to be my driver properly. Was Villeneuve? Mm. Because I forgot. Well, because if Villeneuve had stayed with McLarens, he would have been our best racing driver for certain. Well, that's one of Teddy's. Because that was one of Teddy. decisions. One Teddy terrible decision, yeah. because he was. I mean, he was just brilliant. Mm. I mean, we rang him up. James came back from Tuarovia and said, "I raced against this kid. This kid is really good." And this was the world, you know, world champion or potential world champion. I forget now. And you know, it's rare for racing drivers to praise other racing drivers. He came and said, you should hire this kid. This kid is absolutely fantastic. So we rang him up and said, oh, we, you know, we hear that you're good. Our driver tells us that you're good. And we might, um, we might think about running you in the Canadian Grand Prix and maybe the American Grand Prix, because that's what we used to do. At the end of the season, we used to run three cars sometimes, because it didn't matter if they crashed the car. You know, we're coming to the tail end of the season, we could afford to lose a car and run a third car. And uh, he said, yes, yes, he'd love to do that. And he's kind of broken English. And the next day, the receptionist rang up and said, there's a young man here called Villeneuve who wants to come and see you. And he said, oh, okay. Now, he had put the phone down and gone, bought an airline ticket and flown to England. Got himself from Heathrow to Colmbert without asking where the address was or anything. He didn't ask us to pick him up. He turned up in the reception unheralded because mm -hmm. he thought if these boys are interested i'll go and see them he had a, a manager i don't know whose name remember? oh yeah. Don, was it the guy that wrote the Gaston books Parrell. Oh, anyway he must have yeah. said don't muck about kid go buy on. yourself a ticket and it worked because mm. he came in the reception we took him upstairs we showed him the drawings we showed him the cars he sat in the car made engine noises tried to drive it and you know was obviously so we said okay we'll run him in the british grand prix because that you know we could run three cars at the British Grand Prix because we had more people and more resources, yeah. so we did, and uh, he was fantastic, and I'm certain that he would have been our number one driver, for sure. Well, uh, the, the, um, apart from all, all the, that goes with that, it answers Gareth Holt's question, so you'll be pleased about that, Gareth. But why exactly? Why did Teddy do what he did? Why? Why? He well, it, 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 Tombe. 
it was it was a bluff thing. Um, it was partially bluff, and it was also sadly Philip Morris's corporate speak. Mm. Tambay was um, French and pretty, and spoke perfect French, posh French, and they had a big market. They didn't have a big market in Canada, uh, so it was politics, and also. Though we, we, you know, the race team wanted to have Villeneuve, was, you know, just, yeah, night and day, you know, he, this is our boy, blah, 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 you know, no doubt. Mm. So Ferraris thought this as well, so Ferraris called him up and he flew to Italy and went to see Enzo. Mm. And he came back and he was torn, you know, he said to me, Alistair, you know, I want to drive for McLaren's, but, you know, Ferraris have offered me a, a testing um, yeah. contract and you're not, offering, you're not offering me anything. You know, Teddy's just saying, oh, two or three races at the end of the year, maybe. not." For sure, no contract. So he went to see Teddy, and Teddy said, uh, "Okay, you know, just call their bluff. Tell them that you either have a full contract or nothing." And off he went. And Teddy said, "Ah, see, there we. He'll be back in a minute because he'll go to Ferraris and they'll tell him to bugger off. And he'll be back, and we'll have him." He went to Ferraris and said, "All or nothing." And they said, "Okay, all." <laughs> Yeah. That was it. We lost a driver. <coughs> he wanted to drive for McLaren's. Yeah. He didn't want to drive no, for Ferraris. No, no, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. That's a moment in history. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Incredible. So Teddy tried to call his bluff and it didn't work. Ferraris <laughs> called our bluff and yeah. hired him. Mm. Yeah. And he would have been a fantastic McLaren driver. He just suited us perfectly. The way he came. Because we never, well, we, we didn't look after our drivers at all. <laughs> you know? We just told them, be at Monza on the 23rd. <laughs> Yeah. We didn't say how you're going to get there, yeah. who's going to hold your hand, who's going to buy your airline ticket. Don't forget your helmet, because they would. <laughs> do not do the helmet. <laughs> or if you do, you'll race without it. <laughs> oh, okay. We started, the, I started, because once I got the job, I put lockers in the truck for them and a spare helmet and overalls hmm. in the truck. Uh-huh. So they would turn up with the new stuff or whatever, but if they didn't have the new stuff in the truck, it was an old set of stuff. Great stuff. Okay, uh, well done, Alistair Caldwell, and thank you very much for coming in just ahead of your next uh, adventure. Panama, right? Yes, there's a thing called the Maya Classic and starts in Panama, goes up to Veracruz in Mexico, seven countries in a month, <laughs> finishes on the 18th of March. Should be good fun in my 280SL Mercedes. Trusty old Mac. Yeah, it's done two London to Sydney's, London to Cape Town. It's been all over the world, this car. It's only just finished crossing South America from one side to the other. Good cars, Mercedes-Benz, although other cars are available. Yes. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Great thank, to see you. Thank and, you for uh, having me. Look forward to it. Can I just remind you, everybody, before we go, um, as we said about half an hour ago, we're doing a very special thing in our July edition of Motorsport on Brands Hatch 76. And we want you to contact us, please. If you were there, get in touch. It's hashtag Brands 76 on social media, or just email us editorial at motorsportmagazine.com. Okay? Hashtag Brand76, email editorial motorsportmagazine.com. Great to have you with us again. Really, uh, thanks so much for your support. We're getting more and more, more and more of you all the time. It makes our web editor smile. Thank you, Alan Hyde, for recording it all for us, as ever, hidden away in the corner. Thank you, Simon Aaron, Nigel Roebuck, our editor, Damien Smith, and most of all to you, Alistair. See you next time, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>